If everybody has a Bible, if you turn to Acts 10.38, please. Acts 10.38. Father, I just ask you, Lord, that you'll be with us here today and minister to us by your word. And you'll encourage us, Lord, to seek your face and to know your presence with us individually and corporately. And, and that we'll make that our goal. And we thank you for that, Father. And in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. We're going to read one verse here. Uh, Acts 10.38, it says how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. You can read that verse, and as a church and even as an individual, a lot of times you'll think the first thing that we really need is we need that anointing. We need the power. We need the Holy Spirit to be here with power. That That's our greatest need. And the thing is, we think that'll solve all of our ills. And we even heard a message, this was back in the other building, it's been a few years back, some of you weren't even born, on where is the power. And it was a good message. I'm not saying that having God's spirit, having God's power manifested in our midst isn't a need. I think it is. But I think in a way, we're getting to look for that. We're getting the cart before the horse, so to speak. So I believe the key to our Lord Jesus Christ's ministry is found in the very end of this verse. In the English, it's six words, five words, and in the Greek, it's six words. And it says at the end of that verse what it says, for God was with him. And I actually said this last week. <laughs> I forgot I said it, but it's still true. It says with Hezekiah, it did say he trusted in the Lord like no one else. And it said and God was with him. The Lord was with him, and he prospered in everything he did. That is the key to our Lord's blessing and ministry is that God was with him, and that is everything in the Christian life. I, I can't emphasize that enough because if God is not with you, if his presence isn't with you, we have nothing. It's Ichabod, as they say. But if God is with you, then you have everything you need. You know, not only his power, as we saw here, the anointing, but also you have life when he's with you. You have guidance. We have wisdom, his blessing, everything you need, everything you could imagine when God is with you. You have that. So when we're talking about God being with us, what are we talking about? We're talking about his presence and his glory is with us. So the way his manifested his presence in the Old Testament, it's seen in several ways, but First of all, when they came to Mount Sinai, after they had been delivered out of Egypt, God manifested his presence to the children of Israel in a way, when you read that account in Exodus 24, it, it said they were in awe and they wondered when they saw the presence of God. Because in Exodus 24, it says, now the glory of the Lord, it rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days, and on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And it says, the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. And that is how God manifested his presence. So we'll see several cases. It talks about his glory. It talks about this cloud. And it said that cloud appeared as fire to the children of Israel. I mean, could you imagine seeing a huge mountain? The top of it appears to be on fire, smoke rising up, and then God Almighty speaking to you out of that, which is what he did. And it said they were in awe and wondered. But that's his manifest presence. That's how he 
began to let them know that he was with them. And then later, when Moses finished building the tabernacle, and it's interesting, he went through everything God had told him to do. And it said, Moses obeyed and did all that God told him to do. And so here's this elaborate tabernacle in the way it was made. But yet, it was nothing, wasn't it? It's, it's just like you can have a church building, you can have a praise, you can have everything right, a beautiful orchestra. But if God's not in it, it's incomplete, isn't it? And it says this, when he finished building that tabernacle in Exodus 40, 34, it says, Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's his presence and his glory. That's how his presence is described coming in a cloud, but it's saying it's his glory there. It filled the tabernacle completely. And when Solomon had dedicated the temple and the priest carried the ark into the Holy of Holies or the most holy place, which that ark represented God's presence, it says this in 1 Kings 8, 11, it says it came to pass when the priest came out of the holy place, here again, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And Isaiah, we know in Isaiah 6, he had that famous vision of the Lord sitting on his throne high and lifted up. And when he saw that, it says this in Isaiah 6, they cried out this, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, his presence. And it says in the post of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And it says once again, the whole house was filled with smoke. And that's what it's like when God's glory comes down. And so the idea of his glory, it usually, like I said, manifested as a cloud. That was his presence in the midst of his people, wasn't it? And first manifested at Sinai, as we said, and then his glory and presence rested on a tabernacle, and then in the temple, and when his glory and his presence was in their midst, and they knew it, all went well, didn't it, for them? All went well, and they were blessed. And so when we move into the New Testament, so it speaks of his glory in the old. Now, we don't have this manifestation so much of the cloud coming down and, and all of that in the fire but we do in a way. But it begins with the Lord Jesus Christ. His glory, His presence rested on the Lord Jesus Christ. John 1.14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt, or tabernacled. There is where God's tabernacle is at that time. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in the temple anymore. He's tabernacling in the Lord Jesus Christ. And John says, And we beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so the glory of God was on full display, wasn't it, in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it says we know that he had the fullness of the Spirit. It was given without measure. And what that means is God's presence was fully abiding in the Lord Jesus Christ and his glory was manifested. And that's what we read in our opening text, wasn't it? In Acts 10, 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and power who went about manifesting that doing good, healing all who were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. 
tabernacling in him. His glory was in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it came forth with all he did, with all our Lord Jesus Christ did. And then we move in to the church. Because in Acts 2, the glory of God came down on the 120 as they waited in the upper room. And it says there, his glory and presence filled the room because it says, and suddenly as they were praying for 10 days, waiting on the Lord, getting things right in their life. I'm sure he was dealing with them. And it says, and suddenly when they were doing that, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it says, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting, filled the whole house. Doesn't that sound like all those texts we read in the Old Testament when he would come in the tabernacle, come in the temple and fill the place to where they couldn't stand? It's the same thing. That's what we're hearing there in Acts 2. And it goes on to say that tongues of fire sat upon each one of them. 120 divided tongues of fire on every one of them. It's really pointing back to Mount Sinai. And here is God's presence coming on the church. And the next thing we read is they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And here they are. God's glory and presence is on them. That's what that all represents. That mighty wind filling the room, those tongues of fire. It's God's presence. But he is now tabernacling, not in the Lord Jesus Christ, but who? In his people, his presence, his Shekinah glory. Now, since he was ascended, he said, when I ascend, then I can send down the Holy Spirit, not just with one person, the Lord Jesus. Now it's with his church, isn't it? Starts off with 120. And so when God was with them, which he was, the early church, what was the result? So we're saying we need God to be with us individually and corporately. So you can go through and read Acts 2 through 5. But we have there, here's what happens when God is tabernacling and with a group of people. Peter does what? He's anointed, he preaches, and 3,000 souls in one day are converted, water baptized, and spirit filled, and speaking in tongues. That's what happens when God is with you. And also, not only that, but they were filled with a supernatural love for each other. Supernatural unity and love, because it says this also, now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common, and with great power... The apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and it ends by saying, and great grace was upon them all. So they had the power, right? But why was it? It's because God was with them. God was tabernacling with them. His glory resided inside of them. His presence was in their midst, and great grace was upon them all. Miracles and healings took place. And it says that through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And so when God is among you, either in your individual life or in a corporate setting, in a real tangible way, God will move. He'll manifest and he will move. And that's what the Bible says. <laughs> and that's what you can expect. If it doesn't happen with the crowd, you can expect it in your individual life, can't you? You can and so that's what I'm saying. He's with a group of people, a church or an individual. Not only will his power be evident, but also you'll see the other fruits of his presence, love and grace, 
his favor. You'll see repentance, conviction, saved souls, and last but not least, a true fear of God. His presence also brought out sin, and it was dealt with, wasn't it? And dealt with in a harsh way, it seems, but not really. But it says great fear came upon the church, and all those that heard the preaching of the church, and no one durst join them, it says, yet it says the Lord added daily. But he added daily those that were serious, that were going to be there. That's the way it is. What's the vital question that we have to ask ourselves? And the question is this. We all have to ask ourselves, is God with me? And is God with us? Do you know that God is with you? That's the vital question. Because if he is, we don't need anything else literally. We have everything we need. That's the way it is. And when it's our time to depart out of this world... We want God to be with us because it's the only thing that's going to matter at that time if God is with you or not because everything else is going to be left behind. Not only your riches, your houses, your family, but also your misery and your suffering. Everything's going to be left behind. And the only thing that's going to matter then is you know that God is with you. So the Lord was with Lazarus the beggar when he died. Wasn't he? He was with Brother Terry. I'm not wondering about that. He was with Brother Terry. Hudson Taylor's wife is still one of the better testimonies I ever read. She lay on her deathbed and he asked her, he said, you know, is everything all right between you and the Lord? And she answered, not a cloud has come between me and my Savior. And she died well in full assurance. just like Brother Murphy did. And heaven opens up for those saints. And saints like that. It does. But here's the other side of that. Talk about that briefly. When the Lord isn't with you, when he departs, when the glory is not there, nothing works. In the days of Samuel the prophet, Eli was the priest of the Lord. The Philistines, they come to attack Israel. And there was two battles that happened. They set themselves in array. And in the first battle... The Philistines defeat Israel. 4,000 men are killed. And the people are like, what in the world? Why did we suffer this defeat? And they said, we need to get the ark. Go to Shiloh and get the ark because they're thinking in their minds that it's like their rabbit's foot. We need that ark here. God's presence. That'll help us. We'll win. And so they go. They bring the ark. And when the ark comes, what does the Bible say? That Israel gave this huge shout in so much that the earth shook. And from the Philistine side, hey, what's going on over there? And word comes, well, the ark of God has come there. And they're like scared to death. We can't fight against this God. We're in trouble. You all need to fight like men if we're going to defeat this. And a second battle takes place. It's just this time it says about Israel that a great slaughter took place. And there fell of Israel, not 4,000 men, but 30,000 foot soldiers. And not only that, their rabbit's foot was captured. The ark was taken away by the Philistines. And Eli the priest, his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they all died. Phinehas's wife, she's fully with child. And when she heard that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, it says she gave birth to her child. And it says this in 1 Samuel 4, that she named the child Ichabod, saying, the glory has departed from Israel. In other words, God's presence is no longer here. And she said, because the ark of the Lord has been captured. 
So listen, when the glory departed from Israel, that meant he's not there. His presence is gone. His favor is gone. They're no longer there. And sometimes we can know that that's the position we're in. And maybe somebody's having to deal with that today for whatever. You know, just you're not really serving the Lord. You know, he's not with you. Things aren't going well in your life. But I've got good news today because the story, if you read it, it didn't end there. It didn't end right there with Ichabod. And that was forever it because God judged, first of all, he judged the Philistines for taking the ark. They're not going to mess with him in that way, right? He might have let that happen. And they sent it back. And it sat for 20 years in Kirjath Jerem. And it says that Israel, they lamented the loss of the Lord's presence. It bothered them. He let it bother them for a long time. And then he sent Samuel. He spoke through Samuel to them. And here's what Samuel said to them. And Here's the word for anyone and for all of us, because all of us could to some degree say, you know, we could get things tighter with the Lord, I think, today. Amen. All of us can. But here was the word that Samuel gave them. He says, if you return to the Lord with all of your hearts and then put away the foreign gods and the asteros from among you. And he said, and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. He says, he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. And Israel did just that. It bothered them that they were defeated like they were. It bothered them that God's presence hadn't been with them. And that created desire in their heart. When God gave them that word, they responded. Oh, that's what we want. They put away the Baal. They put away the Ashtoreth. And it says they fasted and they confessed this. They said, we have sinned against the Lord. And through Samuel, if you'll do this, this is what God will do for you. And through Samuel, God supernaturally, they didn't even have to fight, supernaturally defeated the Philistines, totally routed them. All they got to do was enjoy the spoils. They went after the spoils. Just the opposite of what happened before. And it says, if you read 1 Samuel 4, it says the Philistines never came back into their land. Never came back into their land. And we see the same principle in the New Testament. So the Lord may deal with us. He may chasten us for our sins, but he doesn't leave us with no hope. That's not the way God operates. So he offers his power and his presence to those who repent. And if you would turn over to James 4, we can see that. James chapter 4. And look what it says. So there's problems here, James is right. And he says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight in war. Yet, he says, you do not have because you do not ask. He's like, you want all these things in your fighting and your coveting. And he says, yet you do not have because you do not ask. But some of you ask and you do not receive Because you ask for the wrong reason. You ask amiss. Not to glorify God, but that you may spend it on your own pleasures. And James, he's a pastor, but it's a pretty sharp rebuke. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So that's their problem. And he said, whosoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world and makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says in vain that the spirit who dwells in us, so he's writing to spirit-filled Christians, yearns jealously. In other words, God wants all of their hearts, their full attention. That's all he's saying there. But look what he says. 
But he gives more grace. And so the grace of God will get us out of that pit, won't he? And because he says, therefore, he says, God resists the proud. But what will he do? He'll give grace to the humble. Therefore, verse 7, submit to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Is the first step resist the devil? Is that the first step? That's not the first step. The first step is that you need God's presence first. You need to get things right with him. Because once he's with you, it'll all work. And so the first thing he says, you've got to submit to God before you do anything else. He needs to deal with our lives, doesn't he? And we need to get rid of anything that he shows us. And that'll come how? How does that happen? That comes as we seek him. Because that's what verse 8 is telling us. So verse 8 is telling us this is how you submit to God. You draw nigh to him. Seek him in prayer. Seek him in fasting. That's what it says. Humble yourselves. In the, that's code for fasting. And that's what we saw that Israel did. When the ark was taken away, when the glory was departed, they sought the Lord with fasting and they confessed their sins. We have sinned. And they got rid of their sins. That's the formula, if you want to put it that way, for lack of a better way of saying it. And that's what verse 8 on is doing. It's telling us this is how you submit to God. Draw nigh to Him. And it says, He'll draw nigh to you. And when He does that, He'll speak clearly to you, tell you what you need to do. And then like Israel, if we'll humble ourselves before the Lord, then what He did for them, He'll do for you and me, right? It says, He will lift you up. That's what it says at the end of that verse, in verse 10. But most of all, the most important thing is you'll have His presence back in your life. And that's the critical thing. And the danger is that many times... We don't know that he's departed. That's a real danger. Things seem to be going well, financially or otherwise, and yet you can lose your communion with the Lord Jesus Christ through busyness, the cares of the world, work, school, everyone's back to school, work's going well, just life in general. And that's the situation we had with the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3. Jesus himself said to that church, because you say... You say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And he says, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus said, you think you have everything, that everything's good, and I'm blessing you because you're wealthy. But he says, you're blind to the fact that you have shut me out. And my presence is not in your life. And that things really aren't good. That's what really he's telling that church. And he says, therefore, I'm saying that to you. He says, the divine counselor, isn't he called the mighty counselor in Isaiah 9? And the mighty counselor says, I've got some counsel for you, is what he tells that church. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be truly rich, that you may be rich. He's saying, don't avoid trials. Let your faith be tested. And he goes on to say, and get white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And white garments speak of what? All through the Bible. A holy and a righteous life. He's saying, live a holy and righteous life before me. And he also says, and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. And what he's saying there is, 
Paul's prayer back at Ephesians was pray that the Holy Spirit can give you understanding in what I'll do for you, my blessings for you, my power in your life, that I want my presence to be with you. Pray for that I have, that you can see, truly see, because he's telling them they're blind and don't realize it. And that was his counsel to them. From my heart, what I'm saying today is not meant to discourage. I'm not pointing a finger at anybody. This is really not that at all. And it wasn't from the Lord. Was he trying to kill that church there, Laodicea? Was he trying to get them depressed and feel like, what's the use of going on and in despair? Because no, he goes on to say in Revelation 3, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, therefore be zealous and repent. All I can say is, if the shoe doesn't fit you, then praise the Lord. But if it does fit you, then wear it. Be zealous and repent. (laughs) God loves us. But then the Lord, Jesus, in speaking to that church, gets to the heart of the matter. Because what does he tell him? He says, you need to have your communion with me restored. My presence back in your life, my smiling face, because he goes on and ends that by saying, Behold, look, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, he says, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. I mean, we've talked about that. You could not have a more gracious invitation. Isn't that basically what he told Israel? Go back to 1 Samuel 4 in your mind. They'd sinned. He had to chasten them. But yet he comes back to them through Samuel and says, you'll just deal with things. Come back to me. And when they did that, he did not turn them away, did he? He never will. That's just not the way he is. Do you hear his voice saying that to you? What a gracious invitation. They didn't know the Lord's presence had departed in Laodicea. And neither, they couldn't see it. And they were like Samson. So, You know, when you read the account in Judges 16, and God's Spirit would come on Samson, he could do things no one else could do. He could catch 300 foxes, manage to, I don't know how you do this, tie their tails together, put torches in there, and send them into the fields of the Philistines to judge them, burn up all their grain. (laughs) Killed 1,000 men with the jawbone of a donkey. Carried two huge doors on his back. Not just on level ground, not downhill, but up a hill. There was nothing he couldn't do. And why was that? Because God's presence was with him, right? Until, until he fell in love with Delilah, a Philistine girl. That was his problem, wasn't it? He loved women that God's law forbid him to. His parents even said, why do you have to go after them? It's not right that you do that. He's like, hey, I want what I want. He's blind to his own sin, wasn't he? And she was a beautiful woman. And beautiful women can entice men to give them secrets. That's why they don't want presidents and kings and dictators to be fooling around with women, especially from other countries. But she enticed him to give a secret. And he told her, he says, well, no razor has ever come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. And he told her, he says, if I'm shaven, though, then my strength will leave me and I shall become weak and be like any other man. That vow of the Nazarite that was on him, what did that represent? It represented his consecration to God. 
And that woman got him away from that. That's what sin does. It gets us away from our consecration to God. And then what happens? Instead of God being with us, because, look, Israel was not a mighty nation, were they? They were not. They were a weak, small people. But when God was with them, they defeated armies and nations way over their size because God was with them. But account after account, whether it's Joshua, the Philistines, or whoever, when they were living in sin, when sin came in and God wasn't with them, they were weak and easily defeated, weren't they? And that's the way it was. When he gave up his consecration for a beautiful woman, that was it because Judges 16 says, then she lulled him to sleep on her knees, called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. And then this beautiful woman that he was in love with, it says she began to torment him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. So he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as before, as at other times and shake myself free. Thomas going to do. God has always been there for me. He's just taking that for granted. But it goes on to say this. But he wist not or he did not know that the Lord had departed from him. That is the danger that we think because things seem to be going OK, even though we're not dealing with what we know we should be, that somehow we think that God is still with us. It happened to Laodicea. It happened to Samson. And he didn't know it. He didn't know God was no longer with him, and he was poor, blind, and naked just like them. And we can grow accustomed to our sin, can't we? Sometimes that can happen. It happens so subtly. We compare ourselves with others and look around us. Instead of comparing ourselves to the standard God has given us, his word. All I can say is, it didn't end that way with Samson, either, did it? God dealt with him, and guess what? He repented, and his hair began to grow, and he got the last laugh. And God still used him. God was with him again. And all I want to say in ending is God's desire for every person in this room is to be with you and to walk with you. And that's his revelation in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. In Genesis 5, it says Enoch lived 65 years and begat Methuselah. And it says after he begat Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years. 300 years walking with God. He was with God. God was with him. Until finally, after 365 years on this earth, after 300 years of walking with God, God says, you're coming up with me directly. And it was like a giant magnet pulled him up. It says he was translated. (laughs) In Genesis 6, 9, it says, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And it says this about him, that he was a just man, perfect in his generation. And it says, Noah walked with God. Now, he walked with God and God was with him. And I'm saying that was in the midst of three billion people that were so wicked, God had to destroy every single one of them. And I'm saying, Noah, didn't he say that in these last days, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be when the Son of Man comes, eating, drinking, partying doing whatever. And yet we can be those like Noah that walk with God and know his presence with us in the midst of all of that, can't we? Be just like him. It can work the same way. Genesis 21, 22, Abraham, he's dwelling in 
Canaan land. That was not a God-fearing land, and he knew that. And even though wicked king Abimelech went to him, he could see that God was with Abraham. He told him in Genesis 21, God is with you in all that you do. They could see that, even the wicked. And so he's like, let's make a treaty, because I want some of that blessing too. And I don't want you turning on me, because God's with you. He helps you in everything you do. And that's just three places in Genesis. You could go more in Genesis. You could go on through the Old Testament. But I said it's revealed from Genesis to Revelation that God's desire is to be with us in His presence to us, enjoy His presence. Revelation 21.3, it ends this way. He says, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them and they shall be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. That's what eternity is going to be. That's what's going to make eternity bliss. Because if God wasn't there, it'd be like that elaborate tabernacle where his presence hadn't filled it yet. It'd be like, well, this is nice, but God's not here. That's what it's all about, right? He's going to fill the heavens and the earth then, for sure, the new heavens and the new earth. So how do we experience this presence of God with us? Because it is something that we can experience. And John 14, 21 says this, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And Jesus ends by saying, I will love him and will manifest myself to him. In other words, you will experience his presence. So, what he's basically telling us there is the first thing we need to see is obedience to the known will of God. What we know to do that he's shown us his word and promises that he will manifest himself. We will know his presence being with us. And we're back to James 4 with that draw an eye to God. He'll draw an eye to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. The path to knowing that God is with you, his presence is with you, is a clear path of obedience, isn't it? That's how you'll know it. You're not going to experience that living in disobedience. None of us will. That's just the way it is. But the second thing is to pray. So when King Solomon built the temple, he obeyed the Lord, built it exactly like the Lord wanted. And the Lord tells us that Solomon, when he was done, he stood on the bronze altar. It says, before the altar of the Lord, in the presence of all the people. And it says he knelt before the people, knelt down and spread his hands towards heaven and began to pray, Lord God of Israel. He says, there is no God in heaven or on earth like you who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all of their hearts. And it's a long prayer, won't go through it all, but he goes on to pray that God would hear the prayers and supplications of his people that they offered to him towards the temple. And he says many times, and he gives different ways, if they sin and get away from the Lord and he chastens them, he prays if they would repent, would he hear their prayer, forgive them, and remember his mercy towards his people and be with them. That was his prayer. Because he said, who on earth doesn't sin? Who isn't going to need to go back to the Lord and repent and get things right? That's what Solomon said. Who doesn't? And so what was the result of that prayer when he finished that prayer? It says this in 2 Chronicles 7, when Solomon had finished praying, 
It says, fire came down from heaven, consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And it says, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. What is God doing? He's saying, Solomon, you asked me that if my people get away from me, I've chastened them. They're not experiencing my presence. But if they'll repent and turn back to me, will I forgive their sins and be with them again? And when God sends his fire down the way he did, that's his divine yes with an exclamation point. And his presence fills the temple. I mean, how much more encouragement could we have? That's God saying for all time, that's the way I will deal with my people. He's forever pledged himself this because it goes on to say in chapter 7, we talked about this not too long ago and it's still true. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. Let's give our hearts to the Lord. Amen. Obey Him. Seek Him in prayer. And we've just gone through. That's my message today. We have His promise that He will be with us. And when He's with us and His glory is manifested, all will be well. In every respect, it really will. Amen. And that is what we need above all else. His presence. Whatever it takes. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are the God of heaven and earth, Lord, and, and yet you're still willing to look down on us, Lord. We don't deserve anything. But through your grace and mercy, Lord, you continue to speak to us and deal with us. I ask you, Lord, you'll deal with every heart in here, Lord, and that we can purify our hearts, cleanse our hands, that we can once again come before you, Lord, and as we walk through the day, as we sleep at night, that we can know, Lord, and rest in the assurance that you are with us and that all will be well. And we'll see your power, your love, your grace, your forgiveness manifested in our midst individually and corporately. And I thank you, Lord, for that and the words you've given us in Jesus' name. Amen.